This evening we're considering instructions to Christian slaves and masters. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through to verse 9. I have the word servants in verse 5. Let's have a look at that verse 5 there again in chapter 6. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So, I have servants in my King James Version of the Bible, but the Greek word is doulos, which actually means bondman. That is, someone who is bound. Someone who is bound is a slave. So what I'm getting at there, where I've got servants in verse 5, it's more accurate accurate to put slaves. And uh, I had a check when I was preparing this. Quite a lot of the versions do actually have slaves. And that is more accurate in this case. Slavery is one of those subjects that evokes anger in some, guilt and shame in others, especially concerning the enslavement of black Africans with all the cruelty and inhumanity that was associated with it, such as the dehumanisation of those slaves. They were thought of as nothing more than savages. They were depicted as savages. That same strategy of dehumanising the victim in order to make something appear morally acceptable is used in the abortion industry as well. For example, here on our island home, unborn babies are declared to be nothing more than products of conception according to learned medical people such as Dr Alex Allinson who, as a politician, successfully introduced the abortion bill a few years back now. But in the bill itself, it speaks of the products of conception, a dehumanisation of the victim. Anyway, coming back to slavery, the fact of the matter is that there always has been slavery in this fallen world ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. There always has been slavery And there always will be slavery, right up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Even in our time, there's slavery in this world. And slavery was particularly rife during the Roman Empire. For example, in his epistle to the Galatians, in chapter 3 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither bond nor free. In other words, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. Did you hear that in that list of all who are in Christ? Right in the middle of that list, Paul said, there is neither bond nor free. The New Testament commentator Lenski points out that Christ and the Apostles did not denounce slavery and call for its immediate abolition, Christianity followed a deeper, 
more thorough method, method. It undermined slavery with the spirit of Christianity by destroying it from within. And you see that again, bringing up the abortion thing. It's when you have the spirit of Christ in you that you see abortion for what it is. Killing babies, killing human beings. And you, you see that. And it's that when, when you're touched by the grace of God and savingly united to the Lord Jesus Christ through hearing the gospel. And that is how people are delivered from this whole slavery thing. And, and so that the, the gospel is so powerful and that is what is needed in this world today attended by the um, preaching of God's law law and gospel bringing people under a conviction of their sin and then bringing to them the sweetness of the gospel when Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ, he was declaring the glorious truth that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed slaves with his precious blood, every bit as much as anyone else who believes in him as a repentant sinner. Paul was not endorsing slavery, but he was accepting the reality of it, and he was saying that in the body of Christ there are all sorts of people, including slaves. And again I say that there always has been slavery and I think it would be naive of us to imagine that the day will come in this present world when slavery will end. But praise God that there is neither bond nor free for those who are in Christ and have the promise of everlasting life. They, well, they have everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And that great, that, that same hope that all other Christians have, the hope of glory, heavenly glory. Although we needn't pretend that all slaves or bond servants in the Roman Empire were treated with compassion. I'm sure they weren't all treated with compassion. Some clearly were. For example, in Luke chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, it is written, And a certain centurion's servant, again it's doulos, slave, a certain centurion slave, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his slave. There's clearly one master there who had much compassion for his slave. And he, he was none other than a, a Roman centurion. With that said, we'll move on to the instructions from Paul to Christian slaves. Um, and verse 5 again, servants or slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. This appeal follows on from a general exhortation in chapter 5 verse 21 
to submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Slaves are to be obedient with fear and trembling. We, we see in verse 5 there. That doesn't mean fearing their masters who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. Rather they are to fear God who is able to destroy both body and soul in hellfire. A healthy fear of God is extremely advantageous. It's not a bad thing at all. It's advantageous in that it is a good inducement to continually keep the Lord Jesus Christ in your sights and do even the most menial and undesirable tasks, all for the glory of God, regardless of whether masters are brutal or compassionate. You do what you do with fear and trembling, a reverential fear of God. More generally, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul said to the Philippians and Christians everywhere, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That applies to all of us. Work out your fear, uh, your, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We have the Holy Spirit in us, working in us to will and to do that which is pleasing to God as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It can be seen elsewhere in the scriptures that the term fear and trembling is all about doing whatever you are required to do with a reverential fear of God rather than being afraid of what man might do to you. We shouldn't fear men as Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, Paul was referring to Titus when he said to the church in Corinth, and his inward affection is more abundant towards you whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. They received Titus, their brother in Christ, with fear and trembling. So someone comes through our doors, uh, a fellow uh, Christian, a guest, someone coming here on holiday or whatever, we're to receive that person with fear and trembling. Obviously it doesn't mean that when they, the person comes through the doors, our knees start knocking. That's not the fear and trembling. That's not the, what Paul is talking about when he says fear and trembling. It tells us that whatever tasks you undertake as a Christian, they, they ought to be done with fear and trembling, even the receiving of fellow brethren who pay us a visit because, as can be seen, yet again, whatever you are doing as a Christian, you are doing as unto the Lord. So you receive someone coming through those doors as unto the Lord. And the, if we're doing whatever we do, if it is as unto the Lord, there should be that seriousness about what we're doing. It's not something to be taken lightly. And again, even if it's the most menial task, if it do with fear and trembling, a reverential fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
your saviour. As such, the, the obedience rendered by slaves to masters is unto the Lord himself, as is the obedience of wives to their husbands. We, see it, we saw that a couple of weeks ago. When wives are obedient to their husbands, that is unto, as unto the Lord. Ultimately, their obedience is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's something to be taken very seriously. More so than if it was just unto a wife was simply being obedient to her husband or a slave was simply being obedient to his master. The fact that it is as unto the Lord makes it far more serious, far more important to be obedient. Not with knees knocking, but with a reverential fear of the Lord whom you serve. I like what Spurgeon said, C.H. Spurgeon. He said, there is an unholy fear which is cast out by perfect love. That unholy fear is cast out when you become a Christian. But there is a holy fear, a filial fear, which dwells most happily with faith. So it was with Noah, who by faith and moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Spurgeon was quoting um, Hebrews chapter 11. If you, if you read that, the section about Noah in the chapter of faith in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Noah is a, was a man of faith, but it was with, by fear. He built that ark, a fear of God, fear and trembling, a reverential fear. Because what he was doing, he was, his, that service was unto the Lord. So, Noah, who by faith moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. You see, faith and fear can live in the same heart. And they can work together to build the same ark. Faith and fear are sweet companions, very sweet companions, when the fear is a filial fear, a holy dread of disobeying God. When we are moved with that fear, our faith becomes practical. I won't go into any details here. You know, I'm not going to stand here and give the details, but just in recent times, um, I I was led to examine myself and, uh, and... perhaps something that was going on in my own life and think seriously about it and what made me change my course and and, and adjust my course to get back on the right course, if you like, is a, is a, a reverential fear of God. Because even a child, a child can love his or her parents, love the parents sincerely with a great love. doesn't mean to say that they're going to do what the parents say all the time. Again, it's good if that love is mingled with a very healthy fear. Not a a knees-knocking fear, uh, being terrified of the parents' fear, but uh, a healthy fear. And as Spurgeon said, the two... Uh, live together. Faith and fear live in the same heart and they work together 
to build the same ark. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Since a slave's obedience to his master is ultimately to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought not to be rendered in the master's, sorry, it ought to be rendered in the master's absence just as much as in his presence. Otherwise it is tantamount to switching on and off your obedience. The master's here, I better be obedient, he's not here, I'll do what I want. If you remember that, that the obedience that is rendered is as unto the Lord, it shouldn't be switched on and off like a light switch. It's not a sincere obedience that springs from a heart wherein both a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a filial fear of him live as sweet companions if it's obedience that is switched on and off like a light switch. Needless to say that more generally it applies to all that Christians do. If by the grace of God you are yoked to the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Being yoked to the Lord Jesus. You see oxen yoked together. Where one goes, the other one goes. They don't go in different directions. They can't. If you are yoked to Jesus, he having purchased you with his own precious blood, then I trust, I really do trust that you seek the grace to serve him with joy and thanksgiving in your heart, mixed with that fear, that filial fear, whether men are watching you or not. It shouldn't make any difference. That kind of obedience comes from within and it is directed towards heaven, towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what's being said in verses 6 and 7 here. Verse 8. Let's have a look at verse 8. Not with I serve, sorry, knowing that whatever, whatsoever good things any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Once again, Paul does not shrink from mentioning Christian works and rewards, because that's what he's talking about in that verse. Let's have a look yet again. Knowing that whatsoever good things, that's works, good works, any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, speaking of rewards there, whether he be bond or free. Let's be very clear about something. Paul most certainly did not teach salvation by works. With Paul, it was all about the grace of God. This is what I love so much about studying the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. He, he, he brings to us that salvation is by grace alone. Just have a look back at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 2, 8 and 9. Or, yeah. For by grace, that is undeserved favour, by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And as I say every time when I read those verses, 
What Paul is saying there is that there is no one in heaven who will be able to boast and say, well, God saved me because I was so good. Other people did lots of horrible things, but not me. And uh, I always gave to charity. I always helped people. I, I was always nice. I was careful not to say horrible things about people. All good things, this, by the way, what I'm saying. You know, we... Everything I've just said there is commendable. But there will be no one in heaven who will be able to say, well, this is where why I'm in heaven now. Because at the end of the day, as Paul said, it is by grace you are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And we don't add anything to that at all. Because as Paul says elsewhere, there is none that does good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. That's the Apostle Paul for you. He most certainly did not teach uh, a religion of works. And so it is that us as reformed Christians, we tend to minimise the importance of good works because we are saved by the grace of God and we're keen to defend that saved by the grace of God, and we barely talk about good works. However, a God-given faith is seen in good works as unto the Lord. The fruit of a genuine saving faith is seen in how we live our born-again lives. The importance of receiving rewards from the Lord Jesus Christ that also tends to be minimised amongst many Christians just as much as any talk of good works, but not so with the Apostle Paul. What we have in verse 8 are wonderful words of encouragement by the Apostle to Christian slaves that even if the good things that they do go unnoticed and unrewarded by their masters, they will not go unnoticed and, and, and unrewarded by their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Condemnation and everlasting punishment, they are the wages of sin. Also, dear Christian, salvation from sin and everlasting life, what are they on account of? They are on account of God's grace, his undeserved favour. But furthermore, you'll, you'll appreciate that the rewards that Paul speaks of, and, and other passages in the Bible that I won't go into now, there are other passages that do speak of rewards to come. You need to understand that this is also purely by the grace of God. Even the rewards are by the grace of God. Uh, the, the rewards the rewards that we receive proceed uh, uh, are on account of God's undeserved favour rather and you'll understand that if you have a genuine conviction of sin you're truly saved you will appreciate that at the end of the day you remain an unprofitable servant of God uh, with no thought whatsoever that God owes you anything good. 
And so even talk of rewards, we don't deny it, it's there, it's there to be believed, but we can still say, hand on heart, whatever I do, I'm an unprofitable servant. And so it is, again, when we get to heaven, by the grace of God, there'll be no boasting in heaven. Last of all, we shall take a look at the duty of masters towards their slaves. Verse 9. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Not only does Paul not denounce slavery and call for its immediate abolition, but also he doesn't try to erase or pretend that the the different classes in society exist. He doesn't try to erase all of that. There always has been, again, always will be, different classes in society. However, it is equally incumbent upon masters, as it is their slaves, to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, with fear and trembling, and with God working in them, to will and to do of his good pleasure. Obviously, the masters being addressed were professing Christians. They'd have to be. Ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Their masters, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're Christian masters that are, are being addressed here. Members of the congregation in Ephesus. So they all had the same saviour, the same Lord, whether they were slaves or masters. No different to the slaves, masters were to recognise and submit to the authority of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. The instruction to masters to do the same things unto them, unto their slaves, doesn't mean that uh, they were to render the same service to their slaves, as their slaves did to them. What's not being said in verse 9 is, Masters, you need to go to the marketplace and and get the provisions for your slaves. You need to serve your slaves when they're having their meals and and all the rest of it. No, Paul's not saying that at all. But he was enjoining them to show brotherly love and compassion rather than to threaten them. Similarly, in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, Masters, give unto your slaves that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Therefore the masters were to have a regard, not so much for man's law, but for God's law, um, which says, love your neighbour as yourself. And when you you're when you're in subjection to God and to His laws, you're going to be far more compassionate than than if you just had a regard for men's laws uh, that um, dehumanise slaves in the time. That's what they did, and laws now that dehumanise unborn babies. But when you are when you have a regard for God's laws, you love your neighbour as yourself, even if you're a master with a slave. You love your neighbour as yourself. 
Last of all, it doesn't matter who you are in this world, whether you are a prince, a pauper, a person with authority over many, or a lowly slave. If you're a Christian, then all that you do ought to be motivated by a deep desire to serve and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve him with fear and trembling. And what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, sum up all that I've been trying to present to you this evening. Let me just read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through to 8. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem or consider, let each consider other better than themselves. Doesn't matter who you are, consider each other better than yourself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind in you, be, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. This is the King of glory, the Lord Jesus. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And when we get a grip of that and and really begin to understand what's going on in those verses there the king of glory the creator becoming one of us a partaker of the flesh and being nailed to a wooden cross and being lifted up to die bearing away the sins of those he came to save there should be no room for anyone who calls on his name to lord it over anyone else whether it's a husband over his wife a master over his slave. And all of us, whatever our station in life, if we're Christians, ultimately we do what we do as unto the Lord. With uh, certainly rejoicing, thanksgiving in our heart, but also, as Spurgeon said, with that fear and faith, sitting as sweet companions together. Finally, If you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, although you may think that you are free, the reality is that you are not free. You are enslaved by the most terrible, in the most terrible way imaginable, in that you are a slave of sin and Satan. Satan, or the devil, is most definitely not a good master. In fact, He will take you to be where he will be, where he will end up, in the lake of fire, hellfire. True freedom means being bound and yoked to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is full of truth and grace, and the truth will make you free. Whoever you are, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, And know what it is to be truly free. Whatever you do in this world, whatever your position in this world, whether you have authority over, over people or 
you're just a lowly servant, doesn't matter. True freedom comes from being bound to Jesus, trusting in him as your saviour and your Lord. Amen.